Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Good evening, everyone. Usually we start with our three questions, which we will do in a minute, but there's something I wanted to mention first. It's very appropriate this evening that we're covering the uh, paranormal lives of the saints because uh, <clears throat> if there's uh, ever a saint whom I knew in my life, it was my little cousin Libby, uh, whom you've heard about on the air before. We've done some fundraising for her and we've uh, talked about the charities that help children with uh, childhood uh, versions and uh, forms of cancer, bone cancer in her case. But she, uh, she passed away last evening, uh, or translated as we like to say. And uh, I just wanted to thank everyone out there for their prayers and for all their help over the years, those who helped contribute to those charities. We do encourage you to to pray for her. She is a wonderful, saintly person. If there's anyone who's a saint also, it was her mother. And that goes for all the children who suffer from that, from that terrible disease and their parents as well. These are true saints in the best sense of the word. And, uh, again, we, we thank you for your support. And... Uh, Libby's well taken care of, and it's a matter of uh, looking out for the rest of her family now, which Ben and I will be doing. So thank you again. So let's begin. This is show number 433, and uh, we'll start with our questions as we always do. Did the wounds of Christ really appear on the body of a young Rhode Island girl in the early 20th century? Did an Egyptian prostitute have a conversion so complete that she became a great saint able to levitate herself across the desert? Were a number of other saints able to be in two or more places at once? Well, again, welcome to our show. Again, it's number 433 of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben. I should, I know I'm not. I'm Paul. <laughs> uh, I'm a little disheveled today because of what happened. But anyway, um, uh, Ben is in the midst of his commute from classes in Boston and will, as always, try to call in from the train. In the meantime, we're dealing this evening, as we said, with the Paranormal Lives of the Saints. It's a show that many of you have looked forward to. We had to put it off once, but it's finally here. Now, in fairness, many of the miracles and other incidents that happened to the saints we're going to talk about tonight happened and do happen to lots of other people of all religions or no religions at all. But with only an hour, we decided we'd have to do some packaging. So one question that always bothered me in the seminary was, What's the difference between an application of divine power, say as in a miracle, and a paranormal event? I must say that in the end, uh, my opinion became that there really is no difference because God is ultimately behind everything, whether you consider God to be he, she, it, or them, and God certainly is in us. So weird phenomena associated with saints started as early as what amount to prehistoric times and still go on today. The Holy Forefather Enoch, no relative of ours that I know of, uh, as he is known in the Eastern Church, goes so far back that he's honored by just about everybody, including the Muslims. According to the Bible, Enoch was the grandson of Adam and the great-grandfather of Noah. If the stories about him be true, he got to ride in UFOs, taken to see the, quote, most high by what is generally translated into English as angels, but could be translated to several other things. Finally, Enoch disappeared completely. Genesis 5.24 says, quote, And Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, for God took him. Bingo. Over. Or just beginning, I don't know. But rather than drag you all the way through paranormal history first, let's do something special for our local audience this evening and begin with someone many residents might not even know about, a young girl named Marie Rose Farron 
who was born in Quebec in 1902, the 10th of 15 children. The family immigrated to Fall River, Massachusetts in 1906, then to Woonsocket, Rhode Island in 1925. There are still people in or from Woonsocket, where, of course, we are based and where we're broadcasting from this evening, uh, who have memories of Marie Rose Farron, and anyone with stories or thoughts is invited to call in. Uh, don't worry about interrupting us. And, of course, the number is 800-449-1240 nationally, or I'm told from Canada, too, and locally 401-766-1240. That's 800-449-1240 and 401-766-1240. If you have any memories or any thoughts about Marie Rose Farron. So Rose's story goes uh, as follows. Rose started to have visions at the age of six when she told her family that she had seen the child Jesus holding a cross. <clears throat> Not the usual image you see. A year later, she said that Jesus had personally taught her a prayer in French, and she recited that prayer every day for the rest of her short life. From this early age, Rose was very devoted to prayer and church-going. When she was 13 and living in Fall River, which is in southeastern Massachusetts, not far from the Rhode Island border, Rose developed ill health. In fact, her right hand and her left foot were suddenly paralyzed. But two years later, she drank some holy water at church and her hand was cured. The foot, however, remained unusable and the girl had to use crutches for the next 12 years. On top of that, her general health was so bad that she couldn't go to school. Now, this would be hard on any young person, obviously no social life to speak of, and Rose fell into a sort of despair, feeling that God had abandoned her. So she told friends. Now, remember that what happened next took place against the background of what was called the Sentinelist or Sentinelist Affair. Long story short, southern New England was full of Quebecers who had come south to work in the mills. This was, of course, a huge Roman Catholic population. By the time the 1920s rolled around, these people found themselves at odds with the Irish-American Bishop of Providence, Rhode Island, William Hickey. And they were at odds pretty much on everything from fundraising to the use of English in Catholic schools. The French from Quebec wanted to keep French in their schools to preserve the language. Now, this got so nasty that by the late 1920s, most French Canadians here were refusing to donate to the church, and Bishop Hickey had excommunicated the Sentinelist leaders. Excommunication means you can't receive the sacraments, and that's pretty much uh, the kiss of death to the spiritual life of any uh, any Roman Catholic. Now, this is where it gets starts to get pretty weird, <clears throat> um, especially for those who are not part of the old-time Catholic spirituality of suffering. Now, uh, just as an aside, Western church spirituality, mostly Roman Catholics, based their spirituality pretty much on suffering and the crucifixion of Christ. And the Eastern church pretty much bases their spirituality on the resurrection of Christ. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's just how the different traditions developed. Protestant spirituality based on the Bible pretty much or social justice, but mysticism is pretty much non-existent with that, but there are exceptions. By this time, anyway, Rose was going into altered states of consciousness, as we would call it in paranormal research, and she was having frequent visions, or ecstasies, as they are sometimes known in that sort of spirituality. Uh, Rose had developed a spirituality based on suffering for others. As the story goes, and I don't know about this, but this is what it says, Bishop Hickey heard about all this and visited Rose, who was by this time 25 years old and bedridden. Supposedly, he was brokenhearted about the Sentinelist mess and asked for Rose's help through her prayer and suffering, almost like a scapegoat for the diocese. This was kind of part of this, this kind of spirituality. Now, I'm not saying this didn't happen. I have no idea. 
But it does strike me as odd because the Catholic Church has always been very, very cautious about these kinds of people and paranormal manifestations. And they completely reject, officially anyway, mediums, psychics, and any contact with anything uh, they aren't completely sure isn't divine. Now, I'm not, now, this is not what Rose was doing, but uh, I don't know. Whatever happened, it just struck me as a little, little funny. Yeah, no reason it didn't happen. I'm just my personal opinion. Anyway, be all that as it may, Bishop Hickey is said to have authorized a priest uh, to celebrate Mass in a little chapel that was fixed up in the Farron House. Now, this she lived on Asylum Street, uh, and then Providence Street in Woonsocket, by the way. Uh, local people know where those streets are. Uh, probably the best-known phenomenon was the spontaneous experience, uh, I should say, uh, spontaneous appearance of the what's known in the Western mysticism as the stigmata or the wounds of Christ literally appearing on Rose's body, something that, as far as I know, is peculiar to traditional Roman Catholic spirituality. Rose's case is exceptionally rare because she seemed to have, and these, are, there are, these have been photographed and everything else, she seemed to have most major wounds that the Bible says Christ bore on the cross, including those on the hands and feet, plus the wounds on the head that would have been from the crown of thorns, as well as a shoulder wound and bleeding from the eyes. By late 1926, even whip wounds had appeared on her arms and back. Now, I've actually seen things like this, albeit in poltergeist cases. I've seen wounds appear on people after they, I'm thinking of a shaman, uh, one of Ben's uh, mentors who has been uh, dealing with a, a case that we started and I started in 1998 uh, involving a parasitical entity or uh, what in folklore tradition would be known as uh, demonic, I suppose, or any of those evil situations. And these, these things are, uh, they fit the bill, certainly, and this, um, after a struggle with this, this entity, he, uh, he had claw marks on his back, and I've seen many occasions. As a matter of fact, I once sat down with Bud Hopkins, the late Bud Hopkins, uh, a good friend who was probably the greatest expert alive then on alien abduction phenomena. And he showed me an album of photographs of things that were allegedly done by aliens during abductions, and I recognized them immediately as things I've seen happen to people during poltergeist cases. Started me wondering what the connections might be. So in any case, uh, Rose had these, these wounds uh, that match those of Christ as related in the Bible. And uh, these wounds are said to have appeared and disappeared frequently, although the crown of thorns wound stayed with her pretty much uh, most of her life, or all of her life. Now, according to a book about Rose, the wounds of the nails appeared on her hands right before the eyes of a priest, and the guy who wrote the book, who was also a priest, Reverend uh, O.A. Boyer. Uh, the book is titled, by the way, She Wears a Crown of Thorns, uh, Marie Rose Farron. It was published in 1958. I think you can probably still get it if you try hard enough on Amazon.com or something. One priest who examined Rose's wounds in 1930 later wrote that the blood gave off a sweet smell that he had never experienced before. Now, strangely enough, I've experienced that kind of thing, too, not from blood, but they're miraculous icons and miraculous statues that I've, I've uh, kind of looked at, and uh, there is a certain lovely uh, oil, I suppose you might call it, that will be exuded from some of these. I'm thinking particularly of an icon, and I have some of that, and it just has the most unearthly, beautiful aroma to it. And very often, this is associated with phenomena having to do with the saints. So there's much more to the story of Little Rose, as her followers call her. There were more phenomena. Uh, people who visited her often came away feeling as though their lives had been changed. 
And uh, whether she was a legitimate saint or not, or even what that might be entirely, technically a saint is anyone who who has gone to heaven theologically. Uh, anyway, I'm no one to say, but there are two things that kind of cut ice with me about the legitimacy of Marie Rose Farron. One is that she was visited several times and apparently believed in by one brother Andre of Montreal, uh, who was now none other than Saint Andre Bisset. As a young student for the priesthood, I often visited his little shrine at St. Joseph's Oratory in Montreal. His incorrupt body was there encased in glass. Uh, sounds morbid, but it, it was actually a very peaceful and uplifting experience to pray there. And uh, this is one of the phenomena that uh, is not necessary for sainthood, but one of the things they look at uh, is the incorruptibility of the body. In other words, in uh, a common practice uh, by the Roman Church is to exhume the bodies of people who are suspected to be saints, and more often than not, they're incorrupt. Uh, they, they look as they did on the day they died. They look wonderful. Sometimes there are flowers found, fresh flowers in the coffins, and this is all actually well attested. Or again, this lovely aroma that one sometimes gets. Now, uh, this is. Um, an interesting phenomenon. But the other thing that happened uh, is something that happened to me personally having to do with Rose Farron. Now, of course, my family and I live in Woonsocket, and I pass the former Farron House and Precious Blood Cemetery where Rose is buried eight or ten times in the course of a week, sometimes more. And I don't even go out much. Uh, one day in 1999, I happened to stop at the cemetery to get some general shots for the slide presentation that accompanied my lectures. It's a very picturesque place, and there's a lovely colonnaded memorial to one of the governors of Rhode Island who's buried there. It's it's um, it's on a hill. It's kind of a striking place. So I stopped there to get some uh, some pictures uh, just for that, because we uh, to, for the part of my lecture we're talking about, you know, the big question: what happens to us when we die? So in any case, uh, I wasn't particularly looking for Marie Rose Farron's grave, but when I happened to see it, I took a few shots. Uh, what I got was a series of five remarkable color slides taken in full daylight with no flash and no special lighting with a standard non-digital 35mm SLR camera. Now, you can see these images on the 2013 Talking Points page on our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. I've got them all posted there, and you're welcome to take a look at that. Uh, the grave itself is a flat stone with some inscriptions, including a crown of thorns, uh, and the writing is in English and French. A card at the head of the gravestone has a photo and a biography of Rose. So before I describe these slides, let me give uh, the numbers again, particularly for our local audience who may have uh, something to say about uh, Rose Farron. Uh, it is uh, 401-766-1240 locally, uh, nationally in Canada, 800-449-1240. So anyway, slide one, and as I say, you can see these these pictures on BehindTheParanormal.com on the Talking Points page for this show. Slide one shows complete darkness, nothing. Uh, slide two shows a slight illumination of the scene, very slight. It's almost as if someone was shining a light a little bit, and, and you can see uh, the, the card and some of the flowers that are always lining this, this flat uh, gravestone. Uh, slide, um, okay. slide three shows more, more illumination coming from I don't know where. And again, it's, it's as though it, with each shot the grave was being lit up more and more. Slide four shows a striking illumination uh, that seems to highlight only the Farron grave and even seems to reflect off the stone to the right. 
um, I'm looking at that picture now, and I, I just cannot help but be be struck by it. Uh, again, this was these, this is full daylight, entirely normal conditions, no special lighting. Uh, slide five shows a more normal illumination, though the Farron grave still seems to be somewhat highlighted. It was taken from a little bit lower angle. Uh, there is a sixth slide where the lighting seems entirely normal and the sky is the way it actually looked. Uh, while the photo shows an area immediately behind the Farron grave, you can see that the cloud formations in the sky are the same as in slide five, uh, proving that it was taken at the same time and place. Uh, Marie Rose Farron died on May 11th, 1936, at the age of 33. Uh, interestingly enough, the same age Jesus was when he was crucified. Now, nearly 15,000 people attended her funeral, and she was buried from Holy Family Church on the South Main Street in Woonsocket. Uh, the police had to be called to control the crowds. There was, and still is, a strong movement to have her canonized or proclaimed a saint, that's the canonization is the process, by the Roman Catholic Church. But following Rose's death, there was a new bishop, Russell J. McVinney, uh, he authorized two investigations that the people, his people were, were writing to his office, uh, insisting that, that there be an investigation uh, leading towards sainthood for Rose. So anyway, he authorized two investigations that supposedly involved testimony from only three people in one socket. And I don't know, this is, this is, this is the information. I don't know if it's true. And, uh, much to the annoyance of many people, the bishop decided that there had been approximately or there had been nothing extraordinary about Rose's life, and everybody kind of went, huh, what? Now, I strongly suspect, and I don't have any evidence for this, but I strongly suspect that the real motive was political. Uh, there were still sour grapes over the Sentinelist controversy, and putting Rose on the path to official sainthood would have given the French Canadians a rallying point. And uh, again, that's my suspicion, but who knows? Now, in 1947, somebody got permission to exhume Rose's body to see if it was incorrupt, something that's, as I say, it was a kind of bonus in the canonization process. Now, of course, anybody buried in volcanic soil or very dry soils will, will become mummified and will not really be all that corrupt. But in uh, New England here, it's muddy and wet and damp, and it's you know not likely that you're going to be in good shape after so many years. But anyway, they, they wanted to see. Uh, there were big crowds, and I've even talked to a few people who were there. The official story among her followers was that she was incorrupt. But some say maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, I don't know. But again, that's not a requirement for canonization, and as far as I know, this exhumation was not church-sanctioned. In any case, Marie Rose Farron has a global following to this day, and many healings and other miracles have been credited to her intercession with God. As a small personal footnote... A friend of Ben's lived for years in the former Farron home on Asylum Street in Woonsocket and said that every once in a while, one or more of Rose's uh, followers would stop by and ask to see the house and her old bedroom, which was his bedroom at the time. And he usually would show them around, and uh, he found them always uh, usually very gracious, certainly. And uh, he did mention, by the way, that nothing weird ever happened to him in that room. And uh, he rather uh, rather enjoyed the, the uh, situation um, uh, as a guide there for, for people who are interested in Marie Rose Farron. So that's the story with that, as far as I know. If anybody has any other information, let us know. Um, certainly a local, of great local interest to people in our, our immediate listening area here and the uh, city from which we broadcast. So returning to the storied past, we find a number of incidents happening to saints of the Bible. 
one of the most famous being the encounter between a strange flying vehicle and the prophet Ezekiel, sometime in the 6th century B.C. It's often referred to as Ezekiel's Wheel, and is considered by virtually all paranormal aficionados to be an early UFO experience. Now, as translated from Hebrew to English, the book of Ezekiel says, quote, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likenesses of four living creatures. Continuing, this skips, I'm skipping a little bit. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel, unquote. That's, if you want to look at that, that's Ezekiel, first chapter, also the fourth and fifth chapters, and fifteenth and sixteenth chapters, and I'm using the uh, New King James Version. Then a, quote, man clothed in linen, unquote, sometimes thought of as, of, as Ezekiel himself, was commanded to go inside the craft, taking some glowing material and, quote, scatter it over the city, the city being Jerusalem. Okay. There's a book called The Spaceships of Ezekiel, written by a NASA engineer, Joseph F. Blumrich. This was a guy who passionately started out to refute all this ancient astronaut business and ended up becoming a believer in it. Now, there was um, this whole issue of the uh, these ancient astronauts that really began with a fellow by the name of Eric von Daniken in the 60s when he wrote a book called Chariots of the Gods. And he came up with, and he was not a scientist. He was a sort of an aficionado of uh, hotel management and things like this. But he was an intelligent fellow, and he came up with the idea that maybe you've got um, ancient astronauts or ancient aliens who visited Earth and were assumed naturally by the people of the time to be gods flying around in the sky and doing all these other things. Well, that's a perfectly plausible scenario, and that has since taken off, and, and uh, now that we have things like this ourselves, we say, aha, this must have been what they've seen. Uh, almost all, not all, but almost all biblical scholars um, have a problem with that naturally and say, but again, I, I don't know myself. Again, I'm, I spent lots of years in the seminary, but I'm by no means a biblical scholar, although I, I've studied some of the ancient languages that it was written in. And I, uh, I reserve judgment on that, but there are an awful lot of funny things in there that, that could be interpreted in ways other than, than theological ways. Is that a caller? Yes. We have a caller. Perfect timing because we're going to move on to another subject. So, okay. It's Jim. We got him? Okay. Stand by. We're going to push the right button here. All right. Next, we're going to continue with the prophets. Uh, oh. There we go. That doesn't sound good. Okay. All right. We're going to try it again. In the meantime, uh, there's also the issue of the prophet Elijah, who was taken off to heaven in a, quote, fiery chariot and is said never to have died because of that. All right. Um, then, of course, there's the prophet Elisha, whom we will get to in a minute. We got our caller? Yeah. Hello, Jim. Hello, hi, can you hear me now? Oh, let's turn up the audio there. There we go. Okay. And we, we, yes, uh, Jim from? I'm from, well, I was from Rhode Island earlier. I'm Jim Williams. I, uh, you know, I think oh, Jim, of course, yeah. <laughs> Originally from Rhode Island, now from Maine, as I understand it. Well, yeah, I live in Maine. I'm uh, from Montauk. Actually, uh, That's where men live. <laughs> Maine, right? Yeah, and it's probably the most paranormal state in the union. 
anyway, uh, I, I did post, uh, I don't know if you recall, on your, on your Facebook page, I posted about Little Rose and my encounter with her. Uh, it, it was rather interesting because um, she's got quite a number of web pages. There's the um, Little Rose uh, Shrine located in Taylor, Michigan, and this other. Uh, oh, really? I didn't know about that. Yeah, she's uh, pretty popular with some of these churches. Here's the interesting thing, though. A few years ago, I was in. Uh, I was going to. I do a lot of YouTube videos, and I wanted to make kind of a documentary on her because I, you know, I found out about her, and I was getting a little bit intrigued about the story behind her. Um, so I uh, went to Precious Blood Cemetery uh, with my video equipment, and I looked at the size of that cemetery, and I'm like, "Oh Lord, I ain't going to find this. <laughs> I'm not going to find her anywhere in this in this uh, cemetery." Yeah, it's so, pretty huge. Yeah. Oh, it is. Well, here's uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, this article on a website, LittleRoseFoundation.com, states, and, and uh, she says, uh, Many have also testified to an ex- exquisite fragrance of roses emanating from objects associated with rose. Hmm. Uh, Mother Farron once uh, testified to the divine origin of these fragrances, and she said, quote, They are perfumes from heaven. You can be sure that when uh, you have the fragrance, roses close to you, end quote. Now, the, the weird thing is, I pulled into Precious Blood Cemetery, uh, and I knew I wasn't really going to find that grave, so I, I was going to go back home to uh, get the coordinates of the grave. When I was driving on the access road uh, that parallels, I believe it's Rathburn Street, and just before I get to, the, to a gate, the exit gate on the, on the right, there was a woman and child that was walking across the street, across the access road. So I stopped my car uh, and uh, waited for the, the woman and child to cross. And uh, it was a really nice summer's, it was a warm summer's day. And as I was sitting in the car, uh, I, I was smelling this rose scent. It was like, you know, freshly cut roses. And I thought, well, it must be a grave around here or something. You know, maybe a fresh grave with roses on it. Uh, I got out of the car and I looked up and that woman and child were gone. Hmm. I thought, where are they? I looked up, up and down Rathburn Street. I couldn't find, you know, I didn't see them anywhere. Uh, <laughs> so that's like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I looked, I looked to my left and I saw this black white stone and I just had to walk up to it and I looked down and there she was yeah that's that's pretty much how I well you know, well, you know what happened to me on the day that I took those strange photographs I've never really been in there other than that this is I go by it all the time but there was a woman praying very very fervently at that particular stone and, and mm. after she left I went up and sure enough that was Rose's grave now I I all I know is, yeah, and, and take a look at the, I don't know if you have, maybe you've seen the photographs on the website, but I'd be interested in your opinion of those. But um, I don't know, it's, uh, I, I have a good feeling about her. I, you know, the, the spirituality surrounding this is a little strange to me. But mm. nevertheless, uh, that, that, you know, that doesn't reflect on the person. I just, um, mm-hmm. you know, and there, there's also a lot, there's always a lot of baggage and pious Right. Even, even pious myths that will attach themselves to these. I just, but I just have a very good feeling about it. That's that's mm-hmm. me. I don't know. What about you? Oh yeah. Well, me too. I mean, I, well, it was weird. Like I said, I you know when I when I smelled the roses in the air, I thought you know there was a fresh grave, but there was no fresh graves around. Yeah, yeah. And that's I, an old that, cemetery uh, too. Oh, very old. Yeah. It, um, well, I got in contact actually. Uh, I found the uh, Little Rose Shrine website. They, they're located in Taylor, Michigan, and uh, I, I left uh, that my testimony on their page, on their comments, and I got an email from the Monsignor from that um, from that church asking for some details. And I told them about, you know, the, I pulled into the cemetery, I happened to stop right next to the stone, I didn't even know it was, and the, the, the smell of roses and everything, and he replied back saying, you know, that's not surprising. And I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, and I sent back to him, well, what do you mean by that? And he replied back saying, a lot of people had that kind of uh, 
sensation when they were in the room when mm. you know Rose was alive. Yeah, they had this this smell of roses, and there wasn't a single rose in the house. Interesting. And so. Yeah, so when I, yeah. when I read that reply, it's like, okay, I think I hit something here. Well, I know these things exist because I've seen them with my own eyes. The the the, uh, the, the oil and, and the, the unearthly aromas and all this kind of thing. And, of course, one you know, in, in the paranormal realm, you have a lot of uh, olfactory phenomena as well. You know, the uh, smell of cooking, someone's cooking. You know, we, we attribute all that to the multiverse, but you don't have these completely unearthly, uplifting kinds of almost divine, I suppose, things occurring in normal paranormal situations. So, right. I mean, people can make their own judgment. Well, Jim, thank you for calling in. Okay, and thank you uh, for having me on the show today. And uh, I'm just, uh, real quick, I'm on your website. Where are those pictures that you're referring to? Oh, okay. Uh, there is, um, what, are you on the main page? Yep. Okay, I go up to the right and say, Talking Points. Ah, there you go. Okay, and then the, that'll be the different years in 2013, and it'll be right at the top. Hit 2013, uh, yeah. Shows from 2013? Shows for 2013, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, okay. you get these things buried uh, deeper than a ghost. Yeah, right, that, that's it. That's what we do. Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> right. you got to work right. for it. Thanks for Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. All right, uh, very good. Thanks for calling in, Jim. Uh, then, of course, we're still in the Old Testament here. So there was the prophet also, Elijah as I say, was taken off to heaven in a fiery chariot and is said never to have died. Uh, then there was the prophet Elisha, okay, uh, who um, was a student of Elijah, sort of his assistant and his successor. Now, he used to be able to have out-of-the-body experiences at will. <clears throat> of course, an out-of-the-body experience, for those who are not familiar with the term, or OBE as it's sometimes called, is a situation where people are supposedly literally leave their bodies <clears throat> excuse me or their consciousness does and they can travel and see and do different things uh, at one point as related in the second book of kings elisha left his body and flew through the air to the bedroom of a syrian king who was about to attack israel there elisha overheard the king's plans spilled the beans to his own king and the israelites were victorious and all sorts of other miracles are credited to Elisha, including splitting the waters of the Jordan River so that he didn't have to get his feet wet while crossing. That's the real reason, actually. Saving crops and even raising people from the dead. Not bad. So we're going to take our break a little late here, and we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul Noben tonight, Eno. And uh, we will be right back with our um, continuing our stories on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Hi, I'm Greg Bell, the host of When Radio Was. I'm Mortimer. Bill. Is that you under that blindfold? Bill. With this thing on, I can't see who I am. No, I imagine not. <laughs> can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. Yeah. When Radio Was, shows from the past for today's imaginations. When Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. And on that cheerful note, we're back with our saints. Now, moving into more recent times, we find people like St. Mary of Egypt. You prob most of you probably never heard of her. Now, she lived in the late 4th and 5th centuries in Egypt, of course, when the place was an overwhelmingly Christian country. Now, personally, I find her story so moving that it is one of my major sources of spiritual reading. In fact, it's read publicly during every Lent in Eastern Orthodox churches around the world. Mary was a prostitute in the great city of Alexandria 
but which is still a great city, but went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem when she was about 29 years old. Now, frankly, as she herself admitted, she was looking for more customers. Now, ironic as it might sound, to have prostitutes accompanying bands of religious pilgrims was not unusual at all, all the way through the Middle Ages, ancient times all the way through. Now, as the story goes, when the group got to Jerusalem, they went to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the, tradition, the traditional place of Christ's burial and resurrection. When Mary went to enter the church with the rest of the group, something physically prevented her from doing so. She, she, there was a, like a, a, an invisible barrier, or force field as we might call it today, something like that that was keeping her from entering. Shocked and terrified, Mary suddenly it suddenly dawned on her that this was because of her lifestyle and that she was breathing, but for all intents and purposes, she was dead. Then uh, she caught sight of an icon of the Virgin Mary outside the church and was overwhelmed with sadness and remorse. Then and there, she asked for forgiveness and promised to give up the world completely for a life of prayer. When she tried to enter the church after that, she was able to do so. Now, later, she returned to pray at the icon outside and said that she heard a voice say, If you cross the Jordan, you will find glorious rest and true peace. The Jordan, of course, was the same river Elisha crossed when he split the waters. The Jordan River was big in the Bible, as as you may know. Now, Mary ended up crossing the Jordan and lived the rest of her life as a hermit there. Now, we might never have heard of St. Mary of Egypt if it hadn't been for a guy who was also looking for a life of peace in the desert, Zosimus of Palestine, who was a priest. He met Mary after she had lived in the desert for many years. Now, so powerful in holiness had she become that Zosimus says he witnessed amazing feats of clairvoyance, which is a common thing in the paranormal, seeing things not present to the eyes, uh, clairaudience, that's hearing things that are not physically present to the ears, and many other things. When he met Mary, in fact, he said that she was actually hovering off the ground. She asked him to bring her communion the following Holy Thursday and that she would meet him at the River Jordan. And he said that uh, when they, when she kept the appointment, she was on the other side of the river from him as he'd gone back to civilization. Um, she actually walked on the water to get across to meet him. And, of course, uh, she herself didn't even, as with many great people of great holiness and mysticism, she didn't realize this is what she was she was doing. I mean, she just, these were normal, natural things. And this is the definition, theologically, of a miracle. It isn't something outside of nature that, that God does to make things right. What a miracle is, certainly something God does, but a miracle is something that restores creation to what it was supposed to be before we kind of came in and wrecked it. That's the basic idea. So that it, so that the, the beauty of, of uh, Marie Rose Farron's situation with the, the lovely aromas and the smell of the roses, is, as our friend Jim was describing earlier when he called, is something that is normal. Death itself, you'll often hear priests and ministers and, and whoever, clergy of any faith, get up and say, well, de- death is 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 uh, a normal part of life. It's not a normal part of life theologically. It's an aberration. It needs to be fixed by a miracle. It needs to be restored to what its original thing was. And we believe our particular point of view is the w- way God does that is through the multiverse that He used to create everything that ever was er- or ever could be. And that's another story. But in any case, a miracle is not a disruption of nature. It is a restoration of it. 
theologically. And I happen to believe that very strongly. Anyway, moving up uh, again into more uh, recent times, uh, we encounter people like St. Joan of Arc, well-known name, uh, the heroine of France and patron saint of France. She is credited with helping save the country from the English during the Hundred Years' War. Now, the Hundred Years' War was essentially a 14th and 15th century anti-poverty program in which the English would invade France every now and then, steal everything they could, then take it back to England. I'm uh, sorry to say some of my own ancestors were involved in that little enterprise, but uh, there wasn't any poverty in England for some considerable number of years. So anyway, Joan of Arc is remembered for all kinds of paranormal phenomena, but especially for hearing voices or clairaudience, as we just explained in the case of St. Mary of Egypt. Of course, hearing voices and seeing things is also a symptom today of schizophrenia. But, I mean, there are a lot of other things that kind of lent legitimacy to uh, Joan of Arc here and the, the minds of just about everybody, for, at least after a while. Now, Joan first heard voices as a peasant girl of 13. Funny, these, a lot of these girls are 13. When she started talking, she said, to St. Michael the Archangel... St. Catherine, and St. Margaret, giving her guidance and telling her about the future. According to Joan, she was told that she would lead French armies in battle, something she had a little trouble believing as a young girl at the age of 13. And according to Joan, she was told that she would um, uh, defeat the English, or these armies would defeat the English in 1429, and would be, and she would herself would be wounded. The voices even told her where to find the right sword for this little job, Buried near the altar of a church in Fierbois would be found a sword covered with rust. And when it was cleaned, she was told, apparently by St. Michael, uh, when it was cleaned and polished, uh, there would be five crosses seen carved into the blade. And no idea where this might have come. Sounds like a crusader sword to me, but that would have been several hundred years before this. Anyway, she somehow got the priest at the church to agree to the excavation, and voila, there was the sword. Joan was later captured by the English, tried by a church court, and burned at the stake for heresy, as any CCD kid knows. Uh, realizing that there had been a mistake, a big mistake, the church canonized Joan, but not until 1909. So there was, a, and again, these people are very often honored as saints, <coughs> very often because of the phenomena accompanying their lives, uh, but they're not actually recognized officially as such until many, many years later. <coughs> So then there's the issue of bilocation, or being in two places at once. This is another paranormal characteristic reported in the lives of many saints. Now among these is St. Alphonsus Liguri, who lived from 1696 to 1797, 101 years old. He kind of hung in there, didn't he? Far from being some starving saint in the desert, Alphonsus was an Italian nobleman, and a very talented one when it came to intellectual and artistic matters. He was a very able lawyer, but at the age of 27, he underwent a change of heart, deciding to become a priest and dedicate his life to helping the poor. Later in his life, uh, witnesses sometimes saw him helping the poor in several locations at the same time. <clears throat> On another occasion, early in the morning of September 21st, 1774, Alphonsus went into an altered state of consciousness after celebrating Mass. He fell into an armchair and seemed to be lifeless. The next day, and nobody, they kind of were used to this kind of thing by now, so nobody bothered him. The next day, September 22nd, he suddenly woke up and immediately wanted to celebrate Mass. 
Everybody was amazed, especially when Alphonsus announced that he had just been in Rome assisting Pope Clement XIV, who had just died. Later, it was learned that the Pope had indeed died at exactly the moment when St. Alphonsus had awakened from his altered state. Other saints who have bilocated include St. Anthony of Padua, St. Ambrose of Milan, St. Martin de Porres, and even Pope Cyril VI of Alexandria. Now, in fairness, many non-saints have also been reported as bilocating. Among these are people who are about as unsaintly as I can imagine, like Vladimir Lenin and the infamous founder of the Hellfire Society, Aleister Crowley. So this is a well-known paranormal phenomenon. As a matter of fact, we've done shows on this subject. And I'm thinking particularly of a, of a young French school teacher who taught at a private school uh, who was seen in her classroom at one point, and then the students also saw her out, out doing the garden, working in the garden outside the window. And this happened on a number of occasions. It was just sort of one of those things. And um, there, there are a number of uh, other uh, ideas about bilocation, too. I believe it was St. John Bosco, who not only was known for bilocation, but he would, he would rise up and f- sort of fly around the chapel where he would pray in, in a state of ecstasy. And uh, <clears throat> bilocation, levitation, things of this kind are known not only in uh, certainly among Ro- uh, Roman Catholic and Orthodox saints, but among uh, people of the um, of the East, some of the Eastern religions as well. M- many Hindu uh, holy people and mystics will be known for levitating. Uh, I've seen some photographs. Because today, any kind of photograph can be faked, but what um, you hear it uh, well documented by many people, you think maybe this is possible. And the question is, you know, what, what does this have to do? With holiness, and how do we explain these phenomena? Is there a connection between holiness and paranormal abilities? And from what I've seen over the past uh, 42 years and more, I'd have to say yes. Looking at the evidence, these things don't seem to happen with saints who were strictly intellectuals. In other words, you don't hear of St. Thomas Aquinas, the great intellectual and doctor of the church, you know, floating around his room or, or flying through the air or, or being seen in a number of places at once or having clairvoyant uh, experiences. And again, I'm not too uh, aware of, of, of uh, any great scholar saints or doctors of the church who were credited with that, uh, you know, walking on water or by location, anything of that kind. These phenomena seem to be the product of two things, innate gifts and an intense spiritual life that, as I would put it, puts you in serious touch with God and your own existence throughout the multiverse. Limiting life to the intellect seems to discourage, bury, or kill paranormal abilities. And I've actually had a lot of people tell me this who were great adepts at these things, uh, many of whom were uh, <coughs> saying that, that, I would say, well, well how, how do you have this ability to uh, remote view? In other words, you'll see things that are happening at a great distance or be able to know things that are going to happen in the next five minutes. And then they said, well, if I think about it, it doesn't work anymore. You know, if I try to analyze it, it stops. So I'm not entirely sure what that means, and it doesn't bode well for me because I've had a rather intellectual life, so I guess so much for me. But a lot of these other people, this really seems to be to be the case. Um, all right, so uh, <clears throat> what does it mean for our opinion of the huge population of psychics, mediums, channelers, and other paranormal practitioners around us? Well, that's a good question. There are many who um, set up shop and take money for their services and don't really, as far as uh, they, anyone can tell, uh, you know, carry on great spiritual lives. Uh, and many of them are, are, as a matter of fact, they're sort of condemned by the church for these practices. So I don't know. It, it really is rather confusing. But it does seem the more intellectual you are, the less 
paranormal abilities you might have. Not always true, but uh, in my experience it is. So judge for yourself. Uh, for me, I don't think that the church's distrust of these people is entirely misplaced. Um, anyway, so, and uh, I have a few more minutes here, so um, I think what we'll do is take a look at another really odd phenomenon that really has is not connected with a known saint, but with a deacon of Paris. Actually, that was a priest, and there was a certain office of deacon in the uh, major archdiocese, major cathedrals of Europe. Um, there were a lot. There were. He died in the 18th century, and and it's it. Uh, really was centered around a um, uh, Paris cemetery of Saint-Médard between 1727 and 1732. And uh, to me, the thing sounds so amazing and so preposterous that you might be tempted to dismiss it as pure invention. But on the other hand, there was an impressive mass of documents, including accounts by doctors, judges, and other uh, well-known public figures that uh, these things that happened were genuine. Uh, the miracles... Uh, that occurred were, were many, um, but nobody could really explain them. Uh, they started with the burial of Francois de Paris, the deacon of Paris, in May of 1727. He was only 37 years old, but he was revered as a very holy man. He had powers of healing, something we haven't even talked about tonight. You know, that's a common thing. Uh, he was a follower of Bishop Cornelius Jansen, who taught that men can be saved only by divine grace, and was also condemned as a heretic, by the way. Uh, they wouldn't be saved by their own efforts. Uh, and this, of course, is uh, very much in the justification theology of Protestantism. Uh, the deacon, anyway, had no doubt whatever that his own healing powers came from God. Now, great crowds who knew about these powers followed his coffin uh, during the funeral. Many were weeping. Uh, the coffin was laid in a tomb behind the high altar of the church at the cemetery of Samadard. Then the congregation filed past the tomb, laying their flowers and uh, a father f- was there with his little boy who was a crippled, uh, and he leaned over the tomb to put some flowers. Suddenly, the child went into convulsions. He seemed to be having a fit, and a number of people helped to drag the child writhing into a quiet corner of the church. All of a sudden, the convulsions stopped, we're told. The boy opened his eyes, looked around in amazement, and stood up. A look of incredulous joy, I guess, cross, certainly crossed his face, and then, to the amazement of people who were watching, he started to dance up and down, singing and laughing. Now, again, this is a crippled child. Now, his father found it impossible to believe, but the boy was using his withered right leg, which had been completely restored. The news about this spread far and wide, and within hours, cripples and lepers and hunchbacks and blind men, and you name it, were rushing to the church. Uh, at first, a couple of the um, well-known, respectable people who later testified about this uh, believed the stories of miraculous cures, and the majority of the deacon's followers were were poor people. Uh, the rich uh, preferred to leave their spiritual affairs in the hands of the Jesuits, which we know about because Pope Francis was, is a Jesuit, uh, who were more cultivated than worldly and uh, were more intellectual, I suppose. So here we go with the, maybe the, the powers not being so effective if one is an intellectual. But anyway, it soon became uh, clear that that um, uh, they, they couldn't really deny the reality of what was was happening. Uh, people with deformed limbs were being uh, having their limbs straightened and healed. Uh, terrible growths and boils and cancer, even cancers, were be, were disappearing without a trace. Terrible sores and wounds were healing instantly at this site of the tomb of this deacon. 
Uh, the Jesuits uh, declared that the miracles, which is an order of Catholic priests, by the way, uh, declared that the miracles were either a fraud or the work of the devil. And the result was that most of the better off people in Paris flatly refused to believe that anything unusual was taking place and they kind of stuck with the, the poorer people. But um, eventually, so many miracles were going on that kind of won over the intellectual people. And I often wonder, and I don't mean to be cynical, but I often wonder if uh, some of these decisions by the church authorities are not job security. You know, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I mean, I think it, uh, a lot of these things seem to be, you know, like we have all the truth and, uh, you don't. And if anybody else is, is having this, uh, then it's, then it's not legitimate. And it goes back to my contention that what the, the, the religion really began with people's experience of God and that this came in the earliest days by means generally of, of holy people, particularly shamans who had experiences like clairvoyance and clairaudience and all these different things we've heard about related to many of these saints, including the prophets in the Old Testament. And the, the uh, people came along who were more intellectual. Uh, this became less less known. And the clergy, who are very highly educated, really became administrators of the doctrines of whatever religion it was, and uh, these experiences seem to cease. So whenever anyone had these experiences, uh, there was a great question, and rightly so, about whether they were legitimate, but also a certain concern for job security. So anyway, that's my opinion. I may be wrong. So um, anyway, they started, uh, people of quality, quote-unquote, started to investigate this uh, this situation here at the Church of Samadad. And the first thing that a certain judge saw when he entered the churchyard to investigate was a number of women writhing on the ground. They were twisting themselves into the most uh, amazing shapes, and sometimes they were bending backwards, he said, until the backs of their heads touched their heels, something that's physically impossible. And it kind of makes me wonder about some of this. Anyway, these ladies um, were all being healed from certain diseases, and uh, it was quite a spectacle, but there, there was still some, some doubt. But uh, again, it is difficult to uh, to say that these things were entirely uh incorrect or illegitimate and that's just one example but this uh, this deacon like marie rose Farron, was never never officially canonized so judge for yourselves on these things and uh, if you have your own stories or things you'd like to hear about uh, in another show on subjects like this let us know and um, i just wanted to uh, take one moment for an email or two that we have because this is a, a, an immediate question uh this is a question of where to find your article and he says we use his name so jeff Gonwalis of Virginia Beach, Virginia, writes, uh, Hi, Paul, I love listening to you and Ben twice a week. Please direct me to your article explaining the Sandy Hook incident and weird activities in Newtown, Connecticut. I recall listening to your show when you mentioned that there was a connection between the Sandy Hook incident and the strangeness around that area. I, that's my opinion. I have looked everywhere on your site and have not located it. Please provide a link. And uh, signed, Jeff. Well, Jeff, uh, I never wrote an article on that, I, I plan to. Maybe, maybe you're one of these guys who's having a clairvoyant situation. But uh, I've been thinking about it, but I haven't had the time yet. My opinion on that situation, and we do have, shall we say, a mole in the operation in that area. And one of our show reporters lives in that area where that terrible incident occurred. And we've been investigating a case there since 2005. We talk about it on the air a lot, and it's still ongoing. And there are a lot of weird things I don't feel comfortable mentioning on the air about that. Uh, that have been reported to us by people in the area, let's say. Uh, a lot of strange coincidences and odd things about this case. We feel that that part of, of central Connecticut, 
and uh, on over into the Hudson Valley, uh, Western Connecticut and the Hudson Valley is um, extremely active, paranormally, uh, unusually so. And that uh, what causes this? Well, very often it can be traced to things as as, as simple or complex as the tectonics of the, uh, or I should say, the geotechnics of the area, the kind of stone you have under a site. Oddly enough, the kind of soil. High water tables. This, oddly enough, can all affect the paranormal. Why? Uh, because uh, electromagnetic fields are conducted by watery ground, as long as the water isn't distilled and water in the ground is not distilled. And it can do funny, create strange effects in the electromagnetic fields we have found, particularly if you have high tension wires in the area affecting, uh, uh, sort of setting up waves in that direction. And uh, it can do funny things with space time. And that's what paranormal events are. Funny things happen with space-time. Worlds cross each other uh, in the quantum physics sense, and uh, this strange stuff can happen. The trouble with that area is there seems to be a lot of parasite activity, and parasites uh, being, in our opinion, life forms that are multidimensional, if you want to call it that, who feed upon our negative energy, and will push buttons in people to get them to perform negative acts so they can eat. It's like uh, certain kind of, some things in nature do that, parasites and mimics. So uh, there is no such article. When there is, I will post it and let everybody know. So we're down to the wire here, and we better finish up our producers telling us. So thank you for listening this evening. Check out our site again, BehindTheParanormal.com. Look at the Talking Points page for those pictures that I mentioned. You can also buy my books and subscribe to our newsletter and check out 450 uh, almost free podcasts of shows from the past few years. So many thanks to our producer this evening, Steve Bianchi. And on our March 25th show next week, we will welcome Gary Bell. Oh, no, we will not, because he just canceled out. Anyway, we're going to probably reschedule him. He said something came up. A producer for the Sci-Fi Channel who's about to release yet another one of those paranormal reality shows, this one about voodoo practitioners getting into ghost hunting. Forget about it. I can't think of a worse combination. CBS will have... Uh, an open line show. I don't know. We'll have a show on synchronicity. So check that out on our website too and also CBS radio next Sunday. We leave you this evening with a thought from our dear friend Albert Einstein. God always takes the simplest way. I'm Paul Eno. Have a good evening. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.